0: Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Microbe Moment, the show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess.
1: And I'm John.
0: And I'm Julie. And today we have our spooky edition of the Microbe Moment. We're going to be talking about three monstrous microbes that mimic our most terrifying and beloved Halloween horrors. But before we get into that, I do want to say we are doing a little bit of crowdsourcing. We'd like to know your microbe moment. So if you have one that's unique, and we know that you do, we would love if you could send it to us at our Gmail at microbegales at gmail.com. And just go ahead and put in the subject line, my microbe moment, and then we'll compile those and maybe feature you on an upcoming podcast. And if we get enough, maybe we'll do a whole podcast featuring unique microbe moments. Doesn't that sound fun? It
1: does. Yes, it does. Hope a lot of people send some stuff in.
0: Everyone has such unique stories when I ask this question. So I'm really excited to see what you guys come up with here for sure. In today's podcast, we will be talking about three different tales, two of which are in history, two of which are with fungal, and all of which have this underlying lesson to them that the only thing to fear is the knowledge that we do not know. And and often, that knowledge is the unknown world, or the unseen world, as some people like to say. So without further ado, I'd like Jonathan to go ahead and take it away on the Great New England Vampire Scare.
1: All right. So did either of you know... That for 200 years, around 200 years, there were thought to be vampires in New England.
0: Dun, dun, dun.
1: This happened between the 18th and 19th century.
0: So it's the 1700s and the 1800s. Yep. Oh, that's always so confusing, huh?
1: It is. And during this time, there are cases where families desecrated the bodies of the deceased thought to be vampires feasting on their surviving family members.
0: Is this still the time that we're thinking miasma theory, or have people started to connect microbes to infectious diseases?
1: It actually spans that time period. So it starts in the miasma theory, but then after bacteria discovered to cause disease, this is still happening, at least for a short period of time afterwards. Mm.
0: Right, because Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch are late 19th century is when a lot of their big discoveries happened connecting to infectious diseases. Right. And Jon Snow is a wee bit earlier.
1: How these bodies were tampered with varied between the regions in New England. Some bodies were just flipped over, others had the hearts cut out and burnt, and even some were cremated or decapitated. And all this was done to stop the predatory actions of the vampire – And to save the remaining family members, people who are wasting away or looked like they were having the life drained from them.
0: It's going to be so scary to think like your loved one is dead. And then you said predatory. So the zombies, or not zombies, the vampires actually are trying to feed off the other family members. Right. And then you have to mutilate your loved one after weeks, months of being buried in the ground and
1: So some were months, some were years. So it wasn't just like couple week period this was a long range
0: and were family members like involved like they were doing the digging up they must have right because usually they were still burying people in their yards at that point
1: yeah i think the townsfolk were also involved like Mm -hmm. their their instances where the townsfolk townsfolk were like you got to dig up your family members and find where this vampire is
2: oh my god really cool picture um on facebook the other day or the news some- or something where they then you could see the skull and then there was like one of those sky things the um like a sword like a bent sword almost mm. s- right over their neck so if they happened to try and rise up from the grave they would cut their own head off
1: oh my god yeah that that was actually another instance of how they did to uh, prevent the vampire from coming back
0: that's so intense
1: and it was thought that the supernatural was bringing back the dead to feast on the living, but in actuality, it was tuberculosis that was leading people to the grave. In fact, 12 of the biggest vampire-related exhumations in New England were due to tuberculosis. Even Henry David Thoreau mentioned vampires in one of his journals.
0: So 12 of them were due to tuberculosis?
1: Uh, the, the biggest ones, Yes.
0: And the other ones, we don't know what they were due to.
1: I mean, most of them were, but the 12 of like the most well known cases, like there's been, I was going to say a little bit later, but there's at least 80 cases of New England vampires. Mm -hmm. So out of the biggest, you know, 12 of the biggest ones were tuberculosis. Some. Weren't, but the majority, I believe, were tuberculosis. And this this actually ties into European vampires. I'll get into that a little bit later, too. All right. So, I want to talk about three of the bigger cases of vampires. And I want to start with the most well-known, although it isn't the oldest case. And it's the Brown family. This occurred in Exeter, Rhode Island uh, in 1892. So... Again, see that number? In the 1880s is uh, when mycobacterium tuberculosis was found to cause consumption. So this is like almost 10 years afterwards.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So several family members had died of consumption, leaving the father, George, and his afflicted son, Edwin. And Edwin had gone to Colorado already, pretty much to uh, a sanatorium to breathe in the fresh air, and try to get cured, but his condition was worsening. I mean, fresh
0: air does do wonders.
1: It does, but...
0: Sometimes it doesn't cure tuberculosis, though, huh? No. So if they didn't know tuberculosis was causing consumption, do they still call it consumption, or do they call it, like, vampirism?
1: I don't know how far outside New England the vampire scare of tuberculosis really occurred, so I can't say for certain, but... I mean, consumption was just referring to the slow wasting mm. of a family member. And so George was encouraged by the townsfolk to dig up his family members and find a vampire, which would be the one that had uncoagulated blood in their heart. Why that was that telltale sign? I don't know.
0: I mean, your blood will coagulate pretty quickly after death now.
1: Yes, but that gets into my next fact, actually. Okay, all right. So Mercy, who was 19 upon her death, had been dead for two months and had not been buried yet due to the fact that it had been a winter. So she was being held in like a, a, like a little crypt or something until they could bury her. But when her heart was removed, there was blood that was seeping out.
0: So she was a vampire?
1: They thought she was the vampire. So even after two months, the blood was seeping out. So what happens is... The blood clots, but eventually it will start decomposing mm-hmm. and it'll start oozing out. And that's what ended up happening. And her heart and liver were uh cremated and fed to Edwin, the They're son.
2: gross.
1: Yep.
0: Like filleted or like in a soup? No, no, cremated. Yeah, yeah. But like, what do they do? Then sprinkle in it in a soup. They put a sprinkle on some chicken.
1: I think it was like in water.
0: Ashy water.
1: Yeah, so I did watch like a dramatization. They did put it in water. They didn't specify, but I that may just be assuming that mm. they would put the ashes in water and make him drink it.
0: Yeah, I feel like if I had to eat the ashes of my family members, I wouldn't want it in water.
1: No, no. But it didn't work. I don't and, know what I wanted
0: in though. Popcorn. Mm. Mix it with some salt. Popcorn. Mm. And you think it's pepper?
2: No, that sounds terrible. What would you do? I would bake it in a chocolate cake and then I wouldn't even know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good too.
1: Bakery is probably a good way to do it.
0: All right. Baked goods it is.
1: But it didn't work because uh, Edwin died four months later.
0: Gee, I wonder why.
1: So the next case was the Ray family in Jewett City, Connecticut. We're going a little bit back in time into 1854. Uh, this is a similar situation.
0: So now this is John Snow time.
1: Uh, yes. So the son, Henry, again, he was wasting away. He was the one that had tuberculosis and the family had members dying over a nine year period from the disease. And what they ended up doing is they took two of his deceased brothers. They were exhumed and they burnt the bodies and he ended up recovering, and I think because of that, burning of vampire bodies. I, this is a audio medium, and I just used air quotes, so that didn't work. But
0: you wouldn't be the first person to yeah. do so.
1: So, burning of the quote-unquote vampires or part of the body became a standard in the area to alleviate the afflicted of the disease. And the last one I want to talk about is Griswold, Connecticut.
0: So many in Connecticut, huh?
1: Yeah. There some in Vermont, too. Some in Maine. I think a couple in New Hampshire. This actually occurred in 19... Well, no, it didn't occur in 1990. <laughs> oh, it was God, dis- I hope not. It was discovered in 1990, where this grave site was found by children.
0: Oh, yeah. I heard about this. Yeah.
1: And they thought that this grave site was a burial ground for a serial killer, because there was actually a serial killer going around during that time. But it ended up being a colonial family grave. And there was a crypt at the gravesite that revealed a skeleton that had been decapitated with his head along with the thigh bones being placed on the ribs and vertebrae. And the vertebrae had been broken, likely due to someone trying to remove the heart. But they were able to determine that this happened around five years after the person had died. It's not much... Organs or soft tissue left. So they believe that they. Went with their second option of decapitation.
0: So what is the significance of. The thigh bone being. Ripped off and placed on the chest.
1: That one I don't know. That like one they maybe doesn't. Maybe have
2: them like in a cross across the chest or something.
1: No it's kind of like. Um, the Jolly Roger skull and crossbone symbol almost. Hmm. Hmm. But. I don't really know why they did that. It doesn't make sense. But yeah, that's weird. Maybe did they so that
2: think that the, 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 the deceased were like actually coming out of the grave in some way and like physically sucking the life out of people. Is that what they were thinking? Or was that like they thought they were what did they think was happening?
1: That I'm not sure of uh during that time. I'll actually get into the earlier renditions of vampires about that. But at that time I don't know if they were thinking that they're actually coming out of the grave or not, but that's a little hint for a little further down.
0: A little sneak peek.
1: A little sneak peek. Mm. So now I want to talk about the bacteria itself. So this is a rod-shaped bacteria. It's called uh, an acid-fast bacillus. That's because it has, instead of the normal uh, cell wall that a gram-positive has or a the phospholipid bilayer that a gram negative has it has this outer layer called mycolic acid and it's actually pretty good at defending the bacteria from the immune system.
0: Nice little protective shield.
1: Yep. It's actually a really slow grower. It mm. takes like 15 to 20 hours for a generation time. Wow. I mean, compare that to E coli which is 20, 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. I remember in my microbiology class or my pathogenic microbiology class, we did a, um, a different species, but still mycobacterium. And it took three weeks just to see colonies. So it grows very slow. And obviously this causes the disease tuberculosis and typically infects the lungs. It's classified as either latent TB or active TB disease. So latent TB is a state where the body, particularly uh, a type of white blood cell called macrophages in the lungs, they prevent the growth and spread of tuberculosis by forming what is a granuloma. That's what they call it, a granuloma. It's pretty much they encircle the bacteria to try to prevent it from spreading. This usually works very well if you're a healthy individual, you're not going to spread it. Generally, until like something causes your immune system to go awry. I think one of the, the basic, biggest examples is people who become infected with HIV and develop AIDS. Uh, this is actually particularly um, a big trouble in area where untreated HIV is uh, prominent, and there's also a high rate of tuberculosis infections as well.
0: Mm, that makes sense. They're a little immunocompromised, right?
1: Right. The active infection, you have a persistent cough with blood or sputum coming out, and you're, that
0: can take like months to develop, right? Like right. you could just have a dry cough for months and yeah, to years, and then all of a sudden have a little bit of sputum, have a little blood in it.
1: Right. It's not immediate. It is. It's a you slow.
0: Know,
1: it's a slow process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're gonna feel weak. There's going to be weight loss. You're going to have night sweats and fever. I'm not going to get into the too much detail, but treatment is with antibiotics. It's I think nowadays it's always a cocktail of at least three or four different antibiotics. And if you have uh, tuberculosis that's susceptible, the treatment is six to nine months straight of antibiotics. And if it's antibiotic resistant, you have to go to more stronger antibiotics which also have more side effects and that can take up to 30 months of treatment 30 30
0: oh my god and
1: that's if it's still responding and there are cases out there i don't know what they call them now back when i was in undergrad they called them tbx where they were like nothing affected the tuberculosis
0: multi-drug resistant
2: it's a real scary Ooh. thing yeah, during our EMT course, they warned us about when if you went into a home that where people were were coughing, had that dry cough that you immediately wanted to put on a serious like N95 mask, which none of us were familiar with before COVID, but we ha- uh they said to be really careful about that if there's any risk of TB where where if we go into somebody's home uh, that that was a really serious thing if you got exposed.
0: They said that in American EMT class? Yep. It's interesting because I don't think we have that high of a prevalence. And
2: Well, I TV. think it was sort of noted that a lot of times when people come from overseas um, uh, that, that right. you might end up, you know, in their home at some point. And that was something to be very careful of. Yeah.
1: Right. I actually talked to uh, a previous interview with Michael Polaris He was also in charge with uh, TB treatment in L.A. County. The U.S. has adopted, which is pretty effective, is if you have an active TB infection, most of the time you're going to have a health official give you the antibiotic and you have to take it in front of their face. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's like super serious. They're not screwing around with it.
1: So let's dive a little bit into the history of it. So TB is believed to have been associated with humans for 15,000 to 20,000 years. And uh, bacteria can be found in Egyptian mummies that have been buried around 2400 BCE.
0: Is it the bacteria? Like, are they still alive or the DNA is found on the DNA from mycobacterium tuberculosis?
1: That one, I'm not sure. I'm going to assume it's the DNA, Mm -hmm. although I don't know how long tuberculosis can live outside of a host. There's also texts describing the disease it caused in India over 3,300 years ago. And it's gone by many names. It's a Pataisus in Greece, Tabes in Rome, in 1700s is called the White Plague, 1800s consumption, which we already said, and of course, my favorite name, Captain of All These Men of Death.
0: Which doesn't even make any sense.
1: I mean, if you think about it, there are statistics that were like tuberculosis has killed a lot of people. I never read the uh, novel it came from, but maybe it's saying, like, of all the diseases that kill man, tuberculosis is the highest out of all of them. So that's mm-hmm. why it's the captain.
0: And woman. Of people. People.
1: And treatments were developed over the centuries, most well-known being sanatoriums, like I mentioned before. And on March 24th, 1882, the existence of the bacteria was announced by Robert Koch, with the first TB vaccine being developed in 1921, which actually that bacteria that became the vaccine was not tuberculosis. It was a related species. And the first antibiotic treatment was streptomycin that was developed for TB in 1949.
0: By Elizabeth Bugle, even though no one gave her credit for it.
1: (laughs) No. When they started using streptomycin, it was obvious that there was – resistance developing quickly and so that's when they started developing other antibiotics for it
0: but yeah elizabeth bougie that's who it is i think it's a bugle i was kind of close
1: there's a lot of people in science history that don't get the due diligence they deserve Mm -hmm. so let's let's wrap this up a little bit and going a little bit further past the 1800s so Vampires originated in Europe and were not exclusive to tuberculosis. The best example is the Vampire of Venice, who was discovered in 2009 in Italy.
0: It's got such a good ring to it.
1: Yeah, the Ven- uh, Vampire of Venice. Sounds like a
0: movie, like a romance movie.
1: Yeah. And the body was found in the 16th century plague pit and had a brick in their mouth to prevent them from feeding on the living.
0: So, wait, so this body was in there with a whole bunch of plague victims?
1: Yeah, it was and a they- plague pit.
0: Right, so a whole bunch of other plague people. Yeah. People who died from the plague are in there. Mm-hmm. And then there's one guy who has...
1: I don't know why they they singled this person out, mm-hmm. but they did. And it's kind of weird because it is like a physical thing that they did. However, vampires back then were associated with pestilence and disease. They thought that the those diseases would suck the life out of the afflicted and the vampire would gain that life force that was sucked out to the point where they would be able to rise from the grave Mm. once they fed enough. And vampire cases occurred after the discovery of TB, like we said. This was likely due to the fact that these cases in New England, they were very rural, where it takes time for information to get out there. Also, people were desperate because there was no cure for TB, and they were looking for anything to... um, Try to cure their family members.
0: Yeah. The only thing to fear is the knowledge they did not know. Exactly. They did not have this knowledge. They had to blame it on someone.
1: But eventually it stopped, obviously. We don't have uh, any cases of people trying to decapitate the dead. Who knows?
0: At least not from vampirism.
1: Yes. And today there's been at least 80 vampire bodies, but there's likelihood that there are more out there.
0: Yeah. Believe that. Well, that was exciting. So, should we move away from vampires and move into zombies? Let's do it. I actually just like, as a little tidbit. I was on Instagram the other day, and there was a post about which metropolis in America would survive the zombie uh, apocalypse the best, and Boston was rated number one. So, really, yes. Why? Um, because we have real thick subway systems.
1: Okay, we got a lot of skyscrapers too.
0: Yeah. I don't know exactly like what their their ranking system is, but I thought that was kind of cool. I think Chicago was on there, but Boston was number one. I was like, "All right, at least I'm safe from something." <laughs> I'm running up to the mountains. I mean, that's probably safer than even being in Boston. Depends on how how the infection spreads.
2: All right. Well, I have a scary story to tell about zombies. Ooh, do tell. And it's based yes. on reality too, right? It is. This is a real life zombie story that's probably going on right at this very moment somewhere in our world. Mm. So, our story opens with Annie, the carpenter ant. She is just walking along the tropical rainforest floor in Thailand, doing what she always does foraging for leaves to bring back to her colony, just doing her part to ensure the survival of her ant family. On this day, though, she could not see the microscopic spores that she innocently walked through, but they attached themselves to her legs. Uh-oh. Yeah. She continued on with her chores, oblivious to the horror that has, had begun because those spores were infiltrating her tough exoskeleton, and they were beginning to slowly eat away and seize control of her actions terrifying yes so they were taking control of her muscles and they were interfering with her nervous system and a couple of days later annie descends from the tree nest for the very last time the invading microbes only goal is to propagate and spread and for this it needs a very specific environment So while Annie wants to do her job, this unseen enemy forces her to a spot that is ideal for its nefarious purposes. Poor Annie isn't in control anymore. Can it get worse? Indeed it can. She's on the underside of a leaf now, not where she's supposed to be. She's supposed to be picking up leaves from the forest floor. And suddenly she Feels like she's at the right spot and she's not really sure why. But all of a sudden, her mandibles, which is her teeth, are forced down to chomp into the vein of the leaf and everything goes black. And it's a good thing that everything goes black because it's at this point that that microbe that she had walked through really gets into spreading and eating Annie's organs while using her lifeless body for protection. So ants have a very hard exoskeleton and it makes for a good home while you're eating the insides out. It protects you from the world outside while you're still kind of vulnerable. And so this fungus that is now growing inside her is uh, using her lifeless body for protection. And as it eats away, it becomes stronger and stronger, and it decides it's time to propagate, it's time to grow a antenna-like mass that that pops out of the back of Annie's head. Um, and from that, uh, and this is called a stroma, and as it continues to grow, there, there is a uh, parathechial plate that grows, and that is What allows those spores to pop out of there and rain down onto the forest floor again. And then I guess you can probably guess what happens next. Yes. So that is a little bit of a scary story about Annie. And what we're talking about here, uh, the fungus is Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Um, And this is a fungus that's found Um, in tropical forests. And uh, there are about a 1000 species of these cordyceps. And they're basically mushrooms. And there are several that have evolved to interact, we'll say, with other insects. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. An interesting part about this is that some of these have been probably not this particular kind of cordyceps. But cordyceps is considered a one of the mushrooms that people add to mushroom coffee and they have cordyceps as uh, nutrients and and things in some products. So kind of interesting, but so turnaround is a little bit of fair play. They uh, are eating the ants and then for uh, various reasons, then they get turned around and they're consumed by humans. So Oh, the circle of life. Yes. And death. Mostly death.
1: I'll say that that story kind of reminds me of wasps and hornets. There's some species that will paralyze Mm -hmm. a bug and lay their eggs inside the bug, and then the larvae eat their way out while it's still living.
2: Wasps are wicked. So let's get into uh, this particular cordyceps. So it is commonly known as the zombie ant fungus, and it is an insect pathogenic fungus meaning that uh, it symbiotic relationship is very uh, pathogenic for the insect. They don't get anything out of it. They are completely consumed, uh, and the only benefactor is the fungus itself. It was uh, discovered by Alfred Russell Wallace in 1859. Wow, it's um, that old? I didn't realize it was discovered that early. Yeah, well, actually, they um, they have discovered in amber, that not this particular cordyceps, it was a different uh, species of cordyceps, but they have found evidence that this has been happening for 50 million years or so. Uh, they found a, a an ant in a piece of amber that had the fungus. It wasn't growing out of the head. Like in this case, it was actually growing out of the butt. So uh, hmm. a little bit different, um, but it's been going on for a long time.
0: Wow. Yeah, because like 1859, we were just talking about John Snow was running around testing water and trying to figure out if water was the culprit to uh, cholera disease. They were barely attributing microbes to diseases and human health at this time.
2: Yeah, luckily we haven't found a cordyceps that is uh, able to do this with people, but it is and it's really fascinating, right? To think that a fungus could take control and make an ant crawl around to. A specific spot that was ideal for the fungus to grow. I mean, that's it's kind of mind boggling to think that that could actually occur in nature and it's been going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, along with making the ant take it to a spot that has a specific humidity, it's a a specific height up off the ground and it doesn't, it does start consuming uh, the inside of the ant, but it doesn't. Uh, consume the brain, it needs the brain to keep on working um, and controlling the nerves. Uh, But it has taken over the, the control of the muscles. And obviously, the, you know, the fungus is not trying to be mean here, it is doing what all creatures like that do, they are trying to survive. And so it can't move itself. And so it has adapted and found a way to use the ants to do this. So um, they compel that ant to take it to 25 centimeters off the ground on the north side of a plant uh, where the humidity hovers around 95%. So it's really interesting. It's just, it's very, very specific. Um, And that is the perfect spot for growing cordyceps. Uh, And so once the ant finds, uh, you know, the fungus gets the ant to that spot it will have the ant, it controls the mandibles and the way that the mandibles chop down on the leaves, it actually leaves a uh, scar that can be identified as the uh, death grip of these ants that have been infected with the cordyceps. Uh, so, really interesting. And, and uh, obviously, we've got some cool pictures. Uh, you know, if you look on Google images, you can see all kinds of neat pictures of, um, you know, ants and we'll get into some of the other ones. Um, but you can see them, uh, kind of stuck in the, in these positions. Cause once they're clamped down, they don't move again. Um, and, and they, even. they
0: always look so tortured, like very much in pain and, and like, they're not natural at all in their body movements and, and how they get stuck.
1: This week's episode of The Micromoment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Validate your workflow with ZymoBiomics Gut Microbiome Standard, an accurately quantified microbial community mimicking the human gut microbiome. Zymo's complete microbiome solutions have optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. You can find out more... By visiting their website, zymoresearch.com.
2: Yeah, I think that the, the I think one of those studies that I read, um, the, the, the way that the mandible is used for this death grip is a, it's not normal. It's not a natural biting action from, from the ant. So, it, so it's kind of amazing, really.
0: What do you think is more terrifying, having to dig up your family members so that you don't get attacked by a vampire and baking them into chocolate cake? Or having a fungus inside your body that's controlling your every move but not eating your brains?
1: I would say fungus.
0: Yeah, the fungus sounds terrible. Yeah, that sounds terrifying.
1: Because you're aware of it, too.
0: Yeah,
2: totally aware. And
1: so eating you from the inside out. Zero slowly. control.
2: Yeah, I think I think you have to uh, when we when we think about these ants, it's more like the Walking Dead, not that what's uh, the the Brad Pitt zombie movie there where they're like wicked fast. That was like the scariest zombie movie. I like when you Something have those Z, slow Z, ones. World Z, World, World Z, Z. Yeah, when you have like the nice slow <laughs> ones, at least you have a chance. But those ones looked terrifying. Oh, mm.
1: uh, there's some terrifying ones. Uh, the remakes of Dawn of the Dead. And some of the other ones, instead of like lumbering zombies, whoever you made it, they're like, all right, we got these zombies. They're going to be running and screaming.
2: And like Nazi you. zombies. Yeah. Ugh, screaming zombies. That doesn't sound good. So, with its mission accomplished, the fungi has uh, spread itself around and uh, it now is, the spores are falling down to the forest floor. And uh just if you weren't aware, the um when you see mushrooms out, you know, in the ground or on trees, those are also fungus. Um and the, the mushrooms are fruiting bodies. So if you think of uh when you see a, a mushroom, it's really like the apple of a tree. Uh the mushrooms are actually the fruit of the the fungus, which uh in the case of mushrooms you see in the ground and trees, the hyphae are all growing underground in, and in wood and, and other places. And when the conditions are right, they sprout out these, uh, these fruits. Uh, and so for the, like a wood mushroom or anything that, that would come up, you would be seeing that in this case, the, the antenna, the stroma that's coming out of the ant's head is the fruit. And the purpose of fruit is to spread the spores or like with an apple, like the fruit would be the the seeds inside the apple would be spreading, you know, the tree around. So in this case, we're spreading the fungus around uh, with the spores from this antenna out of the back of the ant's head, which is kind of creepy after it made it kill itself basically. Uh, so now that the spores are out, they float down to the ground and the next ant is then going to march on through and uh, the process starts again, and the cordyceps is now found a new spot uh, that it can go.
0: Do you have any idea what the incidence is of the cordyceps with the ants? Like if you're in a tropical or in the tropics, what's the prevalence of cordyceps being infected with ants? Could you find one, or does it take a lot to find one?
2: i th- I think you know, there are a lot of pictures. You can find a lot of pictures out there. I, and there have been cases where the fungus has kind of decimated a nest, but I don't think that's very common. And there are some cases where they've seen an infected ant get kind of get kicked out of and removed from the nest um, so that it didn't spread. You know, all of these and, and funguses all over are part of the, the ecosystem where we see that they are part of the cleanup crew and uh, they also are helping to control populations. But I I don't think that it's, you know, I don't think that you would see like hundreds of them uh, on a walk out in the tropical forest. I I think that it's fairly rare to find one because obviously after it's done its thing that, you know, the leaves are going to fall down and Mm -hmm. blow off. So they're, you know, but I I don't think you go through the forest and see Hundreds of ants hanging off of leaves like this, which would be super scary.
0: That yeah, that would be nightmare nightmare fuel.
1: So, Julie, you actually touch on something that I actually learned recently: the uh, kicking out of the ant that's infected in the colony. Two other ants will sacrifice their lives, drag that ant out, and they all die to protect the rest of the colony.
0: Aww. Ants are
2: so good at being a community. Yeah, that's really, it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, and ants are not the only victims of cordyceps. So like I, I said earlier, they think thousands of species of cordyceps. And um, some of those have uh, over time adapted themselves to attack other victims like moths, wasps, spiders, caterpillars, beetles, flies, cicadas, uh, and they can all fall prey to this. Um, and they all have a a role to play in, in some of the, one of the interesting things with, uh, with cicadas, they have uh, infected cicadas and they, when they, are in there, you'll see that the cicada has, uh, like a white fungus. And so if you found a bunch of cicadas, you would see, likely see some of these that are infected like this and that like half their body is missing. And, um, one of the things, interesting things that this cordyceps does uh, to the cicada is it makes it make the mating sound to attract. Oh, mate. That's evil. As the female. So kind of interesting here that a male cicada will um, send out the mating call that a female would send out. And so another male comes along, tries to mate with it, gets more of the fungus, then flies away. And the process starts all over again. And really fascinating. um, So why males? I I don't know if they know because it's just, but they have determined that that it makes the same noise a female would make. And then... Wow, that's crazy. And then what the other thing you think about with with these is that they only uh, erupt every 17 years. The cicadas. Yeah. And so what does the fungus do? Well, you know, this fungus is only adapted to attack cicadas. So... They have found a way to lie dormant for 17 years, and they come to life at the same time the cicadas do, and they start wow. there. So it's it's super interesting, and I think that there's a lot of people kind of studying it with the, how would we be able to kind of use the kind of control that this fungus can do over muscles and brains? So there could be some evil scientists out there trying to figure out how they could adapt this to human can you know control not that that's actually hopefully that's not actually happening but <laughs> i think people are uh studying this because it's just so creepy and weird yeah it's
0: fascinating for sure
1: i think that the cicada thing is more terrifying than the ant thing
0: well i think just the videos are terrifying because you just see this flying half-eating bug coming at you yeah. and you're like what is that
1: Or are just hobbling around and yeah it's just it, there's no fruiting body, it's just slowly eating away the body. Yeah. And they're still moving around, they're hobbling around, and it's just- Shooting
0: out spores from its back end that is no more.
1: It's a lot more unsettling.
0: Crazy, crazy. Glad they do not infect humans. And that they just increase our immune system, make us think better, and we put them in coffee. So so we think. So we think. <laughs> wonder if anyone's eaten so much mushroom coffee. They feel a little zombied, zombified.
1: There's actually just a quick side note. There was a, a movie that had.
0: All right. do you guys ready for our third and final spooky tale? Let's do it. All right, so our last one that we're going to be talking about today, I think has a lot of elements that mix both what Julie was talking about and what John was talking about, because we are going to the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. So we're going back to New England, a little bit before what we were talking about with vampires, but we will also be talking about a fungus. All right, so before we begin and dive into the history of the Salem Witch Trial, I want to premise preface this in scientific history and where we are at. So, in 1665, this is when we have Robert Hooke. He first published. He published the first scientific bestseller known as Micrographia. This was the first time anyone was describing to the macro world about the unseen world, about the micro world.
1: I just want to say, like, I like the title of that book, The Micrographia. Mm. It's very cool sounding.
0: It does, right? I wonder if you can still get a copy and read it. That would be fascinating. But another published work I would love to get my hands on is that of Antoni van Leeuwenhoek, who in 1683 goes down as the first person to actually draw the first bacteria in scientific literature. And I think that would be really cool to see what he drew back in 1683 and how it compares to some of our microscopy images of today.
1: I don't know. I kind of like the... Those images you see of like ecology or like what animals look yeah. like in the mm-hmm. wild, like, I've they're a lot cooler looking. So I think I would prefer his images over like gram stains. Yeah,
0: they would be really cool to see. And if you don't know, Antoni van Leeuwenhoek, he actually created his own microscope lenses. And he goes down as one of the people to really develop the microscope to see the on-scene world. He created over 500 unique lenses that he hand-made. He had one lens for every specimen that he wanted to look at. And so this was really bringing the microbial world to life and, and spreading this knowledge to the world about it. But... Knowledge doesn't spread that fast in 1683, where we don't have phones, we don't have internet, we don't have computers. Um, So to bring this back to New England and where New England is, we are about 100 years before John was discussing the vampires. So again, they're not really connecting microbes to ailments. They're not really understanding how infection spreads. And just another little note, we've talked about him before. As another New England tragedy of microbes, in 1721, Onesimus helped to stop the smallpox outbreak, and I say that with a little bit of question because I guess we'll never know, but Onesimus was a slave in Boston in 1721, so it's about 30 years after the Salem Witch Trials occurred. And there was a smallpox outbreak in 1721. 844 people died. Onsimus told his owner about this process that he had back in Africa to try to stop smallpox called virulation. Now, virulation is the process of taking pus of an infected individual, someone who has smallpox, and actually inoculating it into a small cut of someone who is not infected. And so the idea is by having a small dose of the infection or the infection agent, not that they knew it was an infectious agent, but by having a small dose from this pus, your immune system could adapt and create an immunity. This is very similar to our idea of vaccines that we have today. Although vaccines have a lot more science behind them and they're a lot safer than the process of virulation because in virulation, they didn't know how much they were giving to anybody. And so they could accidentally give too much, And then the immune system can't overcompensate, they can't control it, and then they will die. So once Onsamis told his owner, the owner told a doctor, and there was one doctor, Zebedil Boylston, who's very, not very famous in Boston, but Boylston is very famous in in New England for sure. Uh, He inoculated 242 people, only six of which have died. We don't really know how much this helped in the smallpox epidemic, but I like to think that Onsamis saved the day. But we're not here to talk about Onsimus, we're here to talk about the Salem Witch Trials. So this all began when Elizabeth Parris and Abigail Williams, age 9 and 11 respectively, started to have weird fits in January of 1692. They would bark like dogs, convulse, vomit, spoke in strange languages, have hallucinations or sensations of things crawling all over their skin. This was so worrisome to the reverend, who is the father of Elizabeth Paris, that he brought her to the doctor. And the doctor didn't know what to do either. He was totally confused and totally baffled by the symptoms and didn't really know how to help Elizabeth or Abigail. And he might have said perhaps they're bewitched, and that may have uh, caused a little bit of hysteria in the Salem at this time. Now, Salem at this time is nowhere to where Salem is today. A lot of people were very rural. We're in the we're in 1692, right? So, we're before the Constitution signed, we're before the Revolutionary War. Um there is a lot of fighting with the native people. Uh, not to mention that your home is not super secure from the bears and the moose and the coyotes and the bobcats and everything else that's running around at that time. So, these people were living in a large amount of fear all the time. And so, when you live in fear, uh you tend to Grow a little hysteric at times. And so it was a neighbor, actually, who decided to turn to folklore in order to determine whether or not these girls were really bewitched and if the Salem villagers needed to be concerned about what was happening. And so she just said, what we need to do is we need to create a witch cake. And a witch cake is composed of rye meal mixed with the urine from the afflicted children. Sounds disgusting, but don't worry. They didn't feed it to any people. They fed it to the family dog. And depending on how the dog acted would determine whether or not the girls were bewitched. So dogs at this time were actually associated with the devil. And so it was thought that if you fed the dogs this, uh, the urine from the afflicted bewitched and they have similar symptoms, they were bewitched. They there were witches among Salem. Now, there are a lot of conflicting thoughts on whether or not the dog died or survived. However, after the witch cake was distributed, was given to the family dog, this is really when the hysteria came into Salem and people started to accuse their neighbors.
1: I just want to say it's kind of funny how they feel like, oh, we're going to fight the devil. He doesn't like rye and urine.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's such a weird, like, I have no clue where that came from. Like, yeah. oh, well, I know, this is a witch cake.
1: Isn't that, like, what do they call, it, like, white magic, technically, or something like that?
0: Yeah, like, folklore magic. Yeah. The reverend was extremely upset by this, because he was kind of like, oh, we're going to fight the devil with the devil. And he was Ooh. very um, upset by the whole ordeal. But what was done was done, and mass hysteria was spun. Mm. So in total, it was about nine-month period that the Salem Witch Trials came down, which I always think is kind of crazy that the Salem Witch Trials are as infamous as they are. It was only nine months. Twenty-five people died during this period. Nineteen people were hung, most of which were women. But there were a few men in the, the works as well. One person was crushed to death, and this would be Giles Corey. And then five people, at least five people, died in jail. Now, the records are a little blurry as to how many people died in jail and to the true causes of their death as well. But over 150 people went to jail during this nine-month period accused of witchcraft. The youngest was a four-year-old, Dorothy Good. A four-year-old witch? A four-year-old witch that they threw in jail. And these are dirty musty jails like we're talking dirt floor no beds you don't get any tennis courts
1: you're not being fed properly probably not either. being
0: fed and and you had to pay for your own shackles and a lot of the people they were accused of, i mean a four-year-old doesn't have any money to to pay for shackles right how are they how's she gonna get her renter fee
1: yeah i don't understand that whole rental fee thing it doesn't make sense to me at all
0: it makes no sense And so what they would do if you did not, you couldn't pay your rent on your shackles is they would confiscate all your property and sell it because you don't need that. You're in jail and you're a witch. So one of the people that actually died in jail died months after the Salem witch trials because she could not afford her shackle renter's fee. So they thought, well, we'll just keep you in jail until you have the money.
1: Which doesn't make any sense at all.
0: Yeah, I don't know where the logic was on that one. But they determined she was not a witch. They determined she was not a witch, that she did not need to be in jail, but she didn't pay for her shackles
2: for when she was accused of being a witch. So falsely accused of being a witch, went to jail when she didn't deserve it, but was still punished for not having money for her shackles. And then she died. And then she died. Yes. How cool.
0: Not cool. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, Dorothy Good would survive her in jailment. However, her mom would be hung uh, for being a witch. So, I mean, lots of people's lives were completely, I mean, completely destroyed. And then you have the children who are losing their mothers as well. And they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And then the other thing that I find really interesting about the Salem witch trial that I cannot wrap my head around based on what I'm told about history is that most of the accusers were girls under the age of twenty? This is a Puritan society, and everything that I learn about Puritan societies and the history of this time says that women and children are have no mouths; their opinions do not matter. So, how did a few girls under the age of twenty convince a whole town to hang nineteen people?
1: I don't know.
2: I don't know. It is my least one of my worst books ever remember reading the scarlet letter in high mm-hmm. school yeah that was the worst oh i just hated that book I hated everybody in the book it sounded yeah. like a terrible time to live yeah that, that was a terrible book they should
0: definitely take that off of the high school reading list
1: i never read it so i can't
0: that wasn't on it. your high school reading it list? was not
1: on my high school reading list so i can't I have an opinion on it.
2: Oh well, never read it. You're not missing anything. Okay. I couldn't I couldn't even get through it. They treated the women so badly. Like I just I, I couldn't read the whole thing.
0: That was one of very few books I didn't read and I just did the cliff notes because I started it and I was like, No. <laughs> no, thank you.
1: Also with like the wholesaling of the property, there there's some evidence that the person that was in charge of that was kind of doing it before they were supposed to before there's any convictions Mm -hmm. and he was pocketing a lot of that money so there's kind of incentive there for him at least
0: yeah yeah there's definitely george corwin was the high sheriff at the time which is very interesting he was 25 years old and he had all this power to go and take the accused to jail shackle them up and steal their property and distribute it to all his men or steal whatever he wants or sell it off to whoever he did. Um, He died of a a heart attack, I think. Not very old either. But it's it's interesting that, uh, yeah, he's 25. He had all this power. But again, it was because mommy and daddy had a great hierarchy in the whole society. He was, which I don't necessarily understand the whole family thing for this, but he was the nephew of three of the judges at the Salem Witch Trial. But none of those judges were related. They all had different last names. <laughs> so it was like, okay,
1: <laughs> all by marriage.
0: Yeah. So well, I mean, there were men. They keep their last name.
1: So no, like the their wives. They all married the sisters. So
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't really know how the the <clears throat> family tree works there, but yeah, it was definitely he was high sheriff, and I think it had a lot to do with his family ties in the society. So there are three prevailing theories as to why the Salem Witch Trials occurred. The first we touched upon a little bit was political gain in property, and this seems probably to be a significant contributor, at the very least, to the Salem Witch Trials. A lot of people gained a lot of uh, political power in politics in the town through this, either by being judges or being part of the police force that would take in the accused. And the other thing that's sort of interesting is a lot of the accusers, those 20, uh, less than 20 year old girls, they were accusing people kind of across the pond, you know, those people that kind of always had their cows that crossed their property line, or those people that were just a little bit different from what they were. And so there was a lot of petty disputes that occurred in Salem in the Salem Village, and it did seem that a lot of times, if you had a petty dispute, you could go to court, or you could just say, "Oh, she's a witch," local jail, and then you don't have to deal with that anymore, right? So it was a quick way to get a get your neighbor out of here. Terrible, but it could be true. The next theory is mass hysteria, and this may seem. Crazy when you think about it on the surface that mass hysteria and fear just drove a whole town to hang 19 people, but then you look at our history and realize, as humans, we do this a lot. We are constantly in mass hysteria when anything changes, when we don't have enough knowledge, we find a scapegoat. And those scapegoats become something that we can latch onto, a physical entity that we can say, this is your fault, and that makes me feel better. If you don't believe me, um, we have McCarthyism of the 1950s where people were accusing their neighbors of communism. We have the satanic panic that happened in the 1980s that pushed a whole slew of people to the outside and marginalized in society just for things that they liked. And then even a couple months ago, when we're talking about the pandemic, there was a lot of finger pointing that went around as to who was responsible for COVID-19. And so mass hysteria, whether or not it was at the beginning of the Salem wish trial or throughout definitely played a huge role in how the people behaved for sure. And again, this usually happens because we don't have enough knowledge to understand our fear and to process it in a structured way. But the third theory I'm going to get to is where we're going to tie it all back into microbes. Cause I know that's what you're here for. And that's what I'm here for because microbes are the best.
1: So what is the microbe we're talking about?
0: So we're going to talk about Claviceps purpurea. So this is a theory that was thrown out by Linda Corporeal. She published a paper where she argued the Salem witch trials could have been the result of ergotism. So as I said, ergotism is caused by Claviceps purpurea. It's a fungus. It's an ascospore. It's picked up by the wind. It can also be transported by bugs to infect more flowers. So when they ask a spore, the spore lands on an ovary of the plant. It infects it and starts growing hyphae. These hyphae eventually grow into an ergot body. The ergot body is also known as a scleracea, which is a hard mass of fungal mycelium. The ergot body ends up being purple or black in color, and can be one to five times bigger than the natural host seed, which may seem pretty big if you have a seed that's five times more than the rest. But when you have a field of rye and you're harvesting, you're likely not even going to catch this purpley or black five times bigger seed. You're just going to harvest your rye and process it. And then each scleratium produces up to 1 million ascospores that can go infect a new host. So that's a lot, a lot of spores that can then go infect a whole field. And many times in agriculture, we'll have one field dedicated to one crop, meaning that disease can spread pretty rapidly. And Claviceps purpurea has a very large host range. There are over 400 grasses and cereal species which are infected by Claviceps purpurea, the most important of which is rye. So we're going to talk a little bit into the evidence for this ergotism theory and some against. So the first is the symptoms. So if you remember, I talked about Abigail and Elizabeth. They had these symptoms where they had violent fits. They had hallucinations. They had the sensation of things crawling on their skin, which is also called formication. And these resemble many of the symptoms that you can get from consuming Infected rye. The other thing that we have is sort of this perfect environment. So if you notice, the girls started to have these symptoms in January of 1692, which means it would have been the harvest of 1691 that had the infected rye. It's in records that the summer of 1691, the growing season of this year, was particularly warm and wet, which is a fungus paradise. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence against ergot as a cause of the Salem witch trial particularly later when things were really starting to be recorded and we had our courts up it did seem that the symptoms that we were talking about that were related to ergotism would turn off and on again the girls would only see specters of the witches when they're in the courtroom they would only have these sensations when it was the most dramatic moment in the court or so the records show, right? We don't actually know how many of these girls were feeling inside uh, their own homes when the spotlight was not on them.
1: I mean, record keeping wasn't great back then.
0: Record keeping was not great back then, yeah. And I mean, it's also, we're talking girls under 20 that are not really allowed to talk and suddenly some girls are getting a lot of attention. I mean, I feel like I would jump on that train too uh, as a as a girl, as a young girl
1: be an accuser
0: yeah just to be just to get some attention you know like at that point you don't really understand your actions you're always just out for attention and and trying to get your parents to look at you
1: even even when the first hangings happen i
0: mean then it becomes really real i'm not talking about (sighs) at that point i'm just saying i can totally see other girls looking at elizabeth and abigail and be like wow they're getting a lot of attention from their parents you know, so I think there is a lot of behaviors that uh, may have spun up because of that, but it did seem like symptoms were turning off and on again at convenient moments, according to the records, at least. And then the other thing that I think is sort of um, interesting in this whole evidence against ergotism is the fact that when they started to accuse the governor's wife, he shut the whole thing down and was like, Mm-mm, no, you can't attack my wife. You-, you sit down, Salem villagers. And they were like, okay, guess we're done. And they let everybody go, except for that one girl who couldn't afford her shackles. I mean, the other thing I would say is that ergotism is not always these sort of subdued symptoms where you have dull eye trances and hallucinations. You can have gangrene. You can get gangrene uh, from ergot. And a lot of people over the years have died. So ergot is another disease um, that has been affecting rye and cereals for a number of years. And in fact... They have a number of different names throughout history. Because of the size of the seed, it's been called super rye. Sometimes it's been called holy fire. And at other times it's been called St. Anthony's fire. Another fun fact about Claviceps purpurea is that the alkaloid, one of the alkaloids of Claviceps purpurea is lysergic acid. And if that sounds familiar to you, then you might know a thing or two about psychedelics.
1: Had too much LDS
0: l d s best
1: in the sixties oh, it's the best joke in Star trek IV,
0: Oh. when they
1: go back in time
0: and they have too much l d s
1: yeah so Spock uh, Spock's acting like Spock and there's this uh marine biologist lady and Kirk's flirting with her, and he's like, we yeah, had too much l d s back in the sixties <laughs> that was the best joke of the entire I love that movie. movie. <laughs> Not that I derailed it at all.
0: Oh, yeah, just a little bit. But yeah, LDS or LSD, if that sounds more familiar to you, was discovered on April 19th, 1943, (laughs) which is the day that goes down in history forevermore as Bicycle Day, when chemist Albert Hoffman accidentally discovered and dosed himself with LSD, which I think is kind of interesting when he had he was under the influence of LSD. He asked his neighbor to come over. And when his neighbor came over, he was like, that's not my neighbor. That's a witch. Which, again, ties it back to the Salem Wish Trials.
1: Yeah, he was acting a little crazy, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, just a little bit. But this makes sense because LSD is quite the psychedelic. But there's also a lot of medicinal purposes for alkaloids of ergot. So throughout history, ergot alkaloids have been used for migraines and cluster headaches, postpartum bleeding, inducing childbirth, aiding in abortions, and even in dementia. So there's a lot of medicinal properties still in this fungus. Even though it may be infecting rye, it may have caused a sound wish trial, and it can definitely, with a lot of massaging, form LSD, one of the most intense psychedelics known to man. Well, Microbial Nation, that is the end of our
2: spooktacular micro-moment show. Ooh, I learned a lot, and it was scary. So spooky.
1: I would say for the Salem Witch Trials, I lean on the side of um, political gain and mass hysteria, just switching over to fear. Mm -hmm. I think it started out mass hysteria, but... Personally, I feel like people realized like at some point this wasn't real, but they were too afraid to say anything against it for fear of repercussions.
0: Yeah, they didn't want to lose face or lose sort of the power yeah. that they had gained.
1: Or be accused of being a witch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true, because it was just going around. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think ergotism may have played a small role in the beginning, but I don't think that claviceps purpurea, can be blamed, can be the scapegoat for the Salem witch trial. It could be, it could be that the rye was infected, but honestly, we'll never know. And ergotism doesn't mean that you should go hang 25 people, 19 people. Right. Right. Well, Microbial Nation, that is the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed the spectacular rendition of the micro moment.
1: We also have several blogs on these topics on our website.
0: And more, not even just these three. I think we have like nine or something because we love Halloween. Yeah. So if you'd like some funky, fresh, spooktacular, monstrous, micro fun facts to share at your next Halloween horrific party, jump on at mycorbygals.com, type in Halloween, see what you see.
1: You can also find us on Twitter. At gals
0: Or Instagram, also at MicrobiGals.
1: Shoot us a message if you'd like to. Any questions, we'd be happy to try to answer.
0: And of course, we want to hear your micro moment. So go ahead and shoot us an email at MicrobeGales at gmail.com with the subject line, My Micro Moment.
1: Until next time, everyone. Bye. Bye.